Well, Merry Christmas. My name is Ben, and I have the privilege of being a vicar, being a pastor in training, and also the student director here. It's also my privilege to share from God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be looking at a text we've been working through the last couple weeks. We're going to look at it yet again. And if it's not yet a familiar text, it will become a familiar text for you. Uh, So if you would, you can grab one of our chair Bibles. Uh, You're going to turn to page 573. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 9, verse 6, uh, and yet another name that this Savior, that we are expecting, the one that we're waiting for here in this Christmas season, Jesus. Another title that he's given, we'll look at today. And if you're a guest here this morning and you do not own a Bible, that Bible that you're holding is our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home. And for anyone here in person or those watching online, I'd love to encourage you as well. If you want to dig deeper after the message, there are questions and other resources you can find on that Church Center app that you heard about, and you can find some car ride, couch side questions, and you can dig a little bit deeper after the fact. So if you're turned there or not, you can go ahead and look up at the screen, and I'd encourage you to go ahead and let's read this together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful words, a promise given in this Uh, book of Isaiah about the Savior that's to come. And here again, we're looking at the titles, the names that are given to Jesus. And today, as you can see, this title, Everlasting Father, is the one that we're going to be addressing. And I have to say, if you look at a text, really any text at all, sometimes it can be clear as day what what the author and what the Holy Spirit inspired them as they, we know it to be God's word, what they're saying. And there are other times where it's a little confusing where it causes you to pause and go, what exactly is being communicated here? And I believe if we look at this text, if there was any spot that might cause you to pause, especially if you're a believer, it might cause you to pause, you go, this title, Everlasting Father, because that title seems to say this. It says, Jesus is the Everlasting Father. And so if you've been a churchgoer for a while, that might sound a little bit odd as it hits your ears. Well, I thought the Father was the Father. I thought God the Father was the Father and Jesus was the Son. Yet here in Isaiah, it's saying Jesus is the everlasting Father. And so hopefully we can take a look at a few other verses and we can help clear that up. What exactly is being said here through this title given to Jesus 700 years before his birth? And to do that, we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump back into a text that we were actually in last week, and it comes out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Right here, we see clear as day, as we see all throughout the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. But the other thing I wanted to highlight here in this verse is it uses the term Father. Father, that could mean a biological father, but here also it could mean your forefathers, the ones that had come before. So often within the Jewish faith, they would look back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their forefathers, even if they weren't biologically related to them. In many cases, yes, they were, but those that had come into that family. Or even in Isaiah, the term father could mean biological father, or it could mean the head of a nation the leader of a people, the father of the people. 
For even here in our nation at the 4th of July, we celebrate our freedom and our four fathers. And maybe there's someone here that's related to Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin. But we might, even if you're not, you might refer to them as your forefathers. So much in the same way Jesus here, the author uh, Isaiah, he's writing that Jesus is going to be the king, the leader, the forefather of the nation that he is about to save. But he is not saying that Jesus is God the Father. Yet, we have to be crystal clear in this, that while Jesus is not God the Heavenly Father, he is God. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. As we touched on last week with mighty God, that Jesus is the mighty God, being of the same essence as the Father, who is there at creation, outside of time and space, breathing into existence the entire world and everything in the galaxies, in the universe, Jesus was there, that Jesus is, in fact, God. Not anything less than God. So here's an image that best tries to represent what we know to be true about God. This is our doctrine of the Trinity. This is true. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. Yet they're all connected. Jesus being fully God. The Father being fully God. The Holy Spirit being fully God. And we look at this and we go, how? Like, how, how does that make sense? You know, what I love about our faith is that we can use our human intellect and our human reason. Yet when it comes to the, thing of God, the things of God and God in his, his very nature— he cannot be put in a box. And the thing that we have to cling to is Scripture. And while Scripture might not actually say the word Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity is very clear throughout Scripture. And even in Matthew 28, when Jesus tells his disciples to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's clear as day as we look through Scripture that there is this doctrine of Trinity, what we know to be true, that Jesus and the Father are of the same essence, yet they are not the same person. And this is important for us to understand that Jesus, as he's coming, he is not saying, I'm the everlasting Father because I am God the Father. But Jesus is the everlasting Father, the ruler of his people, who has compassion like a father. That him and the Father are the same essence, yet they are two separate people. And that God himself sees himself as a father. Jesus, being God, loves like a father. In Psalm 103, it says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For, we, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That God, be it God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, or God the Son and Jesus, has a father's love, a father's disposition of love and care and concern towards his children, compassion towards his children, as any good earthly father would have. The father has it in perfection. Jesus has this love in perfection towards us. So as we hear those words that Jesus is your everlasting father, you actually have the answer to why he would come. Because he knew who you were, and he knew you couldn't do anything about it. 
like you're our state in sin. It says here at the end of these verses that he remembers that we are just. So if you have a daily affirmation, maybe this could be it. Look yourself in the mirror in the morning. You're just. And that could be good news for you because while we are just, we have a God who loves us like a father, an eternal father outside of time and space who wanted to step into time and space to be our loving father. So Jesus is our king who rules over us, and he is also our, he loves us with the compassion of a loving, good, and gracious dad. And so for some of us, that might be difficult. Maybe you wouldn't, you know, your hand wouldn't shoot up if I asked, you had the perfect father. I mean, nobody had the perfect father, but for, for a moment, if you would, go ahead and, and let me know. What, what is a good dad like? Congregation, you can tell me. What does a good dad do? What's a good dad make you feel? What is a good dad? Shout it out. Comfort, loving, protector, patient, provider. What was that? Valuing, forgiving. Oh, that's a good one. Spends time with you, that he's present with you. Are any kids out there? Any kids? I mean, you might put you on the spot right next to your dad. What do kids say about good dads? Well, I guess not a whole lot. I actually looked it up online. You know, there's, there's a lot out there about being a good father. It is not something to step into lightly. It is not an easy role, not an easy vocation to be filled. And it is something that us earthly fathers don't fill, perfect, fill out perfectly. But here, kids were asked, what's a good dad like? How's a good dad make you feel? And so at least from this one article, uh, here are just a few answers I'd love to share with you. So a good dad makes you feel safe, some of what we heard. A good dad can protect his children from getting hurt. A good dad knows how to keep the bad guys away. There's that protector. My favorite one. A good dad always listens to mom. Yeah, smart kids. A good husband and a good dad. But yet in all of these things, a good dad making you feel safe, protecting you, keeping the bad guys away. A good dad, dad pro providing, a good dad protecting, a good dad teaching, a good dad loving, a good dad showing compassion. All of those things are best seen and felt when a dad is present, as we also heard. That a dad actually has to be present. A dad has to be there for those things to be felt. A dad can't keep you from being hurt if he's not there. A dad can't make you feel loved or protected if he's not there. You can have a relationship at a distance, but at a distance, there are still constraints around how deep that relationship really can be and what can be felt. Because certain things, especially as we head into uh, this holiday season, we head towards Christmas, you're going to be around family. There's something different about being with, isn't there? I'm thankful that there's so many people here in this room, but even to those online, if you're able-bodied and able to come, there's something different about being with in a space like this as well. Something that is different that is felt when you are with people. And that is yet another name of God. That he's a God that is the everlasting Father. That Jesus is our ruler and our forever dad who loves us with the compassion of a father. But he's also a, a God and a father who's come close to us. In Matthew 22, this comes right out of 
the text leading up to the birth of Jesus, Joseph, who is betrothed to Mary, who at this point is already pregnant with Jesus, Joseph has thought, maybe I should divorce her. He didn't understand what was going on. And so in a vision, an angel comes to Joseph and he explains what's going on. And we're just picking up right here in the middle of the angel speaking. And in verse 22, it says this, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Here the angel is actually citing from the book of Isaiah, just two chapters earlier from what we read in Isaiah chapter 7, when it's prophesied yet again that Jesus was to come, that the Messiah, that God himself was going to come, and it's right there inside that name Emmanuel, yet another name for God, which means, literally means, God with us. That God was coming to be with his people. And that this is, that, that this is the pivot point in all of human history. That God would actually break into his creation to be with his people. That this is the most significant thing that could ever happen. That the author of creation would actually write himself into the history of creation. That the creator would actually become the created, that he would put on human flesh. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our time just on these three words, because these three words are one of the most important things that we could ever understand about God and about Jesus as, the per as God and what this whole season is about, that God has come to us. Now we've already touched on Jesus and the Trinity that he is God, but it, it needs to be said that this is important for us to understand. Even here in a church, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is God. Jesus is not a good teacher. Jesus is not some wise sage. Jesus is not your life coach. Jesus is not someone that's a cheerleader helping you through difficult seasons. Jesus is God. And more and more, that actually is a divisive statement that will divide people because there's those out there that would look to Jesus and everything that he did and everything that he said, and they go, well, that's just a great prophet, a great teacher. Yet that's not what Jesus says about himself. And that's not what scripture says about Jesus either, that this is God. And this is so critical for us to understand this name and the significance, not only of the name Emmanuel, but what actually took place with the birth of Jesus is that God, the infinite, majestic creator of all things chose to come down to be with us. One way to understand it might be if you just went outside and saw an anthill and they might be struggling a little bit and in all your grace and mercy you look down on all those pitiful ants and you think, I'll give it all up. I'll give up family, house, home, car. I'll become an ant to save the ants. Setting everything aside. Does that, does that help create a little bit of context for us? The God of everything chose to put on this human flesh, which is amazing that he's given us these bodies, yet they're feeble. They're not perfect. In this sinful, broken world that he chose to put on human flesh. Then we get to the second word. So we understand Jesus is God, the everlasting Father, the God of all time, stepping down to be with. God actually, since the very beginning and throughout the Old Testament, has said time and time again, 
to, to Abraham and to Sarah, to Isaac. He said to Joseph, I am with you. I will be with you. I will never leave you. That's because time and time again in the Old Testament, the people wondered, is he with us? They were facing things in front of them that were bigger than them, and they, they needed the confidence and the assurance that God was surely with them. But outside of God actually being there physically present right there with them, that they could see and touch and hear a God that's in front of them, they had to trust in his word. In other supernatural ways, be it a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, be it a burning bush or be it any sort of miracle, be it God sending angels. But yet throughout the whole Old Testament, we don't see God coming to his people in the flesh. The only glimpse of this that we possibly get is at the very beginning in Genesis when it says that God came down to walk with them in the cool of the evening. That's a glimpse of what God longed for. That's the right relationship with God. Yet that had been broken. And so that has left people to wonder. In difficult seasons, in desert seasons, when they're not hearing the voice of God, God, are you with me? Because to tru truly understand what it means that God is with us, we also have to look at the opposite then. What does it mean to be without God? Or what is it like in general in your life to be without? What is that thing in your life right now that if you were to be without, that it creates a heaviness, that there's a deficit can lead you into longing and to despair. Maybe again, as we're headed towards holidays where we gather around with family, maybe there's a place at the table or a place around the Christmas tree that's going to be empty this year. And you feel the weight of the without. Maybe it's the fact that around the Christmas tree there's less presents. That finances are a little bit tighter. Things are a little bit difficult, so we're without a little bit. If you've ever dealt with without, being without something, you know the weight that that can carry. And so here in the Old Testament and here even in our own lives, when there is that void, when we feel like the thing that is most critical and most important for us, the most important relationship for every person, the relationship <coughs> with God, when you feel like that is without, like you are without God, then you can see the significance of God being with. If you were to answer that question in your head, what is that thing that you couldn't do without? How many of you said your spouse? Anybody? No, a few? Maybe it is. It made me think, when I was preparing this message, it made me think of this. Please forgive the photo. It was taken with a flip phone 16 years ago. So it's the, I, it's the best we can do. Well, 16 years ago, I started uh, dating uh, Stephanie, who's now my wife. And so 16 years ago, we graduated high school. We went off to our first year of college. I went away to Chicago, and she stayed local in Saginaw and went to school there. We did a long-distance relationship thing for a year. It was the age not only of flip phones, but the age of minutes. You guys remember this? We used them. All of them. I mean, every single day, probably more, at, at least once a day, sometimes multiple times a day, just checking in, how are you doing, love you, bye, you know, and then 
call again, and we burned through minutes. I, I'll never forget all of a sudden a call getting cut out one evening, and I didn't understand what happened. Well, minutes were gone. And so we did this long-distance thing, you know, for weeks, months, you know, all the way through that year. And it was a difficult thing, especially just starting off in a new relationship because all I wanted to, was to be with her, to be around her, to be in her presence so she could be with me and I could be with her. And so I kind of got sick of it, and we had, you know, it's not that far. We could do visits every now and again, but I remember I, I devised a plan. I wanted to see her. It wasn't a time that I had planned on or communicated that I was going to go see her. So what I did is I knew a friend that was still in Saginaw, actually attending the same school that she was attending, and I said, can you do me a favor? Could you take Stephanie out for coffee? You know, this place, this time. I was not, you know, trying to set them up. No, it wasn't like that. But could you take her to this coffee shop at this time? You know, and don't tell her anything else. And what I did is, I got, got out of class early, I packed my stuff up, and I started driving home. It was a five-hour drive, six-hour drive, whatever it was. And I, I even remember she called me while I was driving, and I kind of felt caught. Like, I, I had to, like, make it short so she'd hear that I was driving, you know, and that she'd ask questions. And so I'll never forget that I was there at the coffee shop, sitting there, as she walked in with our mutual friend, and she's just so confused, like, what in the world was I doing there? But... I wanted to do anything to be with her, just to be with her presence. And that's where this photo comes from, because there was something different about being physically present. There's something different about sitting across the table from someone that you love and sharing a cup of coffee than just simply being on the phone. And so God, in Jesus, coming, becoming incarnate, he saw that we were without. And rather than sending more prophets and sending more signs and, and just from a distance, sending thoughts and prayers, hey, you guys will be just fine. He decided to step into his creation to be with us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He decided to become one of us so he could be with us, so that we could see him and hear him and touch him, and ultimately so he could die for us because we couldn't do that for ourselves. But he came to be among us, with us, showing just how much he had that compassion as a father that he longed to be in our presence. So we've talked about God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the everlasting ruling king, loving father towards us, Jesus decided to be with us, that this was the right thing for him to do, to, to step down into his creation. But that leaves us one last word. Us. So go ahead and brace yourself. If you ever hear this phrase, we have to talk, or let's talk about us, let's go ahead and talk about us. This is with the analogy of like stooping down to go towards an ant, and then we could even go a layer deeper than that. Ants are somewhat, you know, amoral. But how are we all doing? Is every thought that you have, every deed that you say, and every word that you say perfectly aligned with God's will? The answer is no. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 9, it says that we are people walking in darkness. In Romans chapter 5, 
it says that we were enemies of God. And then it goes as far as in Ephesians chapter 2 to say that you were dead in your sins. That there was nothing in ourselves of, of ourselves that we could do to draw close to God. That there was no way that we could answer the question of being good enough or getting closer to God. That's where we see the true significance. We see the, the majesty and the magnitude of an almighty God who's willing to step down to be with us. That for all the good that we do and all the good that we think of ourselves, that in the right way, the true way to truly view ourselves is that we are. We're sinful. We're fallen. We don't fully trust him. We don't fully walk in his will at all times. Even after you, you believe in Jesus and you receive that gift of faith, we are still broken people, yet he still comes to us. The significance of Christmas is found there, that he doesn't come to a good people that have pulled themselves up and cleaned themselves off and dusted themselves off and said, oh, Jesus, we're ready for you. He comes to broken, poor, miserable people, you and I, that he loved compassionately enough that he would not only put on flesh to come to us, but he was willing to sacrifice himself, that he was willing to die on a cross you and I deserve, so that we could be with him not only now, but with him forever. And so now here in Romans, we hear from Paul, who's going to be asking questions that we might ask ourselves. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will God not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? If you feel without, like there is a deficit in your life, that there's something missing, that something was there before, but it's gone now, and I don't know how can I move forward you're not really missing that thing. You're just missing the comfort and confidence of knowing full well that despite all that you face in your life, that God remains with you. It goes on and he asks, who shall separate us from the love of God? It talks about famine. It talks about nakedness. It talks about angels or demons, heights nor depth. There is actually nothing within all of creation that could separate you from God's love. In all of those cases, if it's famine, if it's nakedness, if it's being without those are experiences that we all have in our lives and that Paul most certainly had in his life. And it did not shake his faith, but it made him return and cling to all the more with confidence of God who came to him, not Paul who came to God. And so if we ask ourselves, what shall separate us? There is nothing. It finishes with at the end of Romans chapter 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in all of creation, visible or invisible, that could ever separate you from his love because it's him himself who has drawn close to you. There is nothing greater than him, so there's nothing that could overcome him. So we can have full confidence in this season if you're feeling that withoutness. Some sort of deficit. Maybe you're even just feeling weak in your own flesh and you're wondering if God is near you can have full confidence that the God who is the everlasting Father and the God who is Emmanuel, God with us, who came to be with us as a baby and came as a man and died on a cross for you and I, he also said at the end of Matthew that surely I am with you to the end of the age. 
that that same God who came to us over 2,000 years ago is the same God who sent his spirit, the spirit that raised him from the dead, resides in you and resides in me. So no matter what you face, no matter what difficult season it may be, or no matter what weakness that you see in yourself, you can have full confidence this. He still loves you, and he is still with you. And because of that, we get to move forward in our broken lives with hope. Hope of eternity that the God who remains with us, that one day we will be with him again. Amen?